This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we love to hear from authors on this show, and today we have author Kimberly Ray Miller talking about the memoir she wrote a few years back, Faith Brings Us the Story. I just always knew that we lived in a dirty house and other people lived in a clean house and that just seemed like the way things were. I I realized it was something different and wrong when I was in kindergarten and um, CPS was called to my home and I remember my parents frantically trying to clean the house before um, the social workers visit um, so that they wouldn't lose custody of me. And that's when I realized that living in a dirty home was a bad thing, that it it was something that could destroy my life. Um, And of course, you know, I grew up just always making excuses why why people couldn't come to my house. Um, From that point on, I knew it was a secret. And, you know, in high school, I would just sort of always tell people, well, my house is being renovated or... Um, my parents aren't home, they don't like people over when, when they're not home. I would always make some sort of excuse so people wouldn't come over. And when people were to, were to drop me off at home, I actually had what I called my decoy house, which was a house around the corner from my actual house um, that was just this sort of unimpressive home that was neither fancy nor dilapidated. It was just very plain. and. I would just have people drop me off in front of that and I would like walk up the sidewalk and wave at my friends and wait until they left and then I would walk to my house from there. Kimberly Ray Miller is a writer and a mother of two small children. The life she has now is completely different than the home she grew up in. In her career, she decided to write a book about this upbringing called Coming Clean, a memoir. I started writing Coming Clean um, when I was 28 years old. And up until that point, I had been a writer. I mostly wrote gossip and health and fitness jargon, and um, that was sort of my niche. And I took a book writing class with an agent who had told me that you had to tell the story only you could tell. And I thought, wow, there's really nothing interesting about me. I am this middle-class girl from the suburbs of Long Island and I'm trying to make it as an actress and I work a day job and host a web show but there's really nothing really that interesting about me and then my mom got sick and she ended up going in to have her gallbladder removed and they ended up severing the vein going to her liver and she almost completely bled out she was in the hospital for months and while she was there I was faced with the reality that there was something very unique about me and unique about my family, which was that I grew up in a hoarding home. Uh, My father is a hoarder, and the way that I grew up, 
was unique. What I was faced with when my mom was in the hospital was that I needed to make sure that the home that she went home to was clean enough for her to heal, to be safe, and to walk around with a walker. Um, and so I remember being in the hospital, walking into one of those rooms. She was on a cancer ward because that was just the, the only place they had room for her. And walking into one of those private family rooms where you sort of go to get bad news and calling a friend of mine whose mother owned a cleaning service and for the first time in my life confessing that my family wasn't like other families, that I was a hoarder. Well, I wasn't a hoarder, my dad was a hoarder. And I came from a hoarding home and then I needed help because my mom was being released from the hospital in 72 hours and I basically said, I will give you every sin that I have if you can help me find people who will clean my parents' house. And up until then, I would go home every few months, clean my parents' house out, and then it would get full again, and I would go back and clean it out, and um, that was sort of the cycle that we lived in, but it was also something that seemed very normal to me. It was something that I didn't give much thought to. Um, so after I sort of came out as somebody who had a very close relationship with hoarding disorder, I started remembering a lot of things that I had sort of put away in the back of my mind. I had, you know, I started remembering a lot of things about my childhood, about the houses that we lived in, and uh, I realized that I did have a story to tell. And it may not be the story of every hoarding family, but it was a story of mine. And I have a very close relationship with my parents. I'm, I'm very close to my family. I don't blame them for the way that I grew up. And I felt like if anyone was going to tell this story, I wanted it to be me because I wanted the way that people saw hoarding to be human, um, to put a human face on, on this disorder. Um, so I started writing down all of these memories that I was having. And I remember calling the teacher from my writing class years earlier who told me that I had to tell the story only I could tell and saying, I think I have a story. And I went into her office and she happened to be an agent. I told her my story and she was like, yes, this is a book. Um, and so I started writing Coming Clean and Coming Clean came out in 2013 um, and it changed my life. Um, I, the, the months between when it came, when I finished it and when it came out were the scariest of my life because I really believed that once people knew, once people knew that I grew up in garbage, that I didn't have heat or hot water or, or that there were rats in my home. At one point there was a homeless person living in our attic um, that we just didn't know about um, because there was just so much stuff. I thought once people knew these things about me, that they wouldn't want anything to do with me. And you're listening to author Kimberly Ray Miller, and her book is Coming Clean, and it's her story about growing up with hoarding parents and the shame she felt. I mean, that story about having a decoy house and having people drop her off in front of that decoy house and wave goodbye so that she could avoid and avert the embarrassment of such a thing as her own home and also the shame and the guilt of growing up in that home. When we continue more of Kimberly Ray Miller's story, Coming Clean, here on Our American Story.
And we continue with Our American Stories. We've been listening to Kimberly Ray Miller share her story from her book, Coming Clean. It's a memoir about her life growing up in a hoarding home. We return to Kimberly talking about what it was like to write such a personal story. I've, I've never been more emotional publicly. I, I lived in Brooklyn while I was writing Coming Clean, and I remember I would sit down at home to write and nothing would come. And then I would get on the F train to go back and forth to work or to see my boyfriend, who's now my husband. I would just break down. I used to carry a laptop in my, my, my purse so that I could write because I knew that whenever I was around people, whenever I felt that energy of, of other people, that's when I, I started to remember everything and I started to feel things very deeply and then I would just start writing. So wherever I was, I wrote half of that book on my phone. What's funny is that I actually met my, the man who's now my husband while I was starting to write the book. And I sort of credit writing coming clean with the success of our relationship because up until then, my whole life had been about keeping this secret about myself. Because of that, I sort of always internalized that who I was at home was a private thing. And so I, I have to say that I didn't always get very close to people in relationships and I met my husband at the beginning of this process and I was such an open wound basically I was just so open about everything about who I was about the trauma that I had experienced and and he stuck around <laughs> but I mean I, I was actually ready to just be myself at that point because I'd finally opened up um, and allowed myself to be who I was publicly I was always an overachiever right so my whole life was about escaping where I came from. I, you know, I always, when I talk to educators, I always say, you know, yes, you want to look for the kids who are, you know, showing obvious signs that they, that they need help, but you also want to look at the kids who are, who are doing their damnedest to fly under the radar. So I, you know, for me, everything was about being as perfect as possible so that nobody noticed me. You know, I, I really used my background as the catalyst to achieve and to get out and to get away from home um, and actually you know a big turning point for my family happened when I the the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college I had received financial aid to go to college I went to a very expensive school you know this is why 17 year olds should not make major life and financial decisions so my financial aid was withdrawn and I was faced with moving back home and going to a local school until I could afford to go back to college. And I had finally escaped. I had gotten away. I had moved and I was out on my own and I was sort of living my dream and everything I had always worked for. Um, and then I was faced with moving back home. And my parents' home was sort of as, as bad as it had ever been. Um, it, you know, there, was, there were rats, there were, you know, bugs, there were fleas. It was, it, we had no utilities anymore. We were all just sort of like living on our mattresses because the house was so full. And I tried to kill myself because I, I couldn't go backward. So I overdosed and um, that was sort of this turning point for my family because my parents had sort of bought into this idea that I was totally okay because I had made it such a staple of who I was that I was fine, that everything was perfect, that I was totally okay and I just couldn't handle this idea of moving back. At the hospital, I wouldn't speak to my parents. And my mom came in and she said, I just want you to know you never have to go back there. 
we rented an apartment. So they, they abandoned their home um, and got out. And I always say that that was like the best, stupidest mistake I ever made. You know, I, I don't condone ever trying to kill yourself, ever. But it was the catalyst my family needed to get out of a situation that was killing us. It was really killing us. And while they'll, they've always dealt with hoarding disorders since then, it's never gotten as bad. Um, so that was the moment my parents needed to, to get them unstuck. And my mom ended up cashing out some of her annuities so that I could get, go back to school in the fall until we were able to, to figure out the rest of my finances. So it shaped me. I, my whole life was about proving that I was okay and that I was fine and, the, and, and you know, don't look behind the curtain. A lot of that has changed since I wrote the book because now everything is about what's behind the curtain. So it's, it's, it's almost the complete opposite, my life since. Um, but my formative years were all about, you know, putting on a show. How did her parents feel when she decided to write this book? When I decided to write Coming Clean, and I, I remember leaving my agent's office and then having like a total nervous breakdown in the middle of the street when I realized the severity of what I had just done and calling my parents. And my parents were amazing. They said, you know, when when you were young, we didn't believe anybody in the world lived like us. So if this story can help other people get help when they need it, then you should do it. And I kept them in, in the loop of what, what I was writing the entire time. I always gave them the option for me to pull the plug if they ever got too uncomfortable. Now, this isn't the way that most memoirists work. You know, I mean, I, I'm part of a bunch of memoirist groups where people sort of, you know, under the, the general belief that if people wanted you to write nice things about them, they should have been nicer. But I, I think my parents existed in a state of mental illness and, and they really couldn't help a lot of what they did. And so I know that my parents did the best that they could. And I always wanted to give them the respect of not having their life turned upside down and made public if they were uncomfortable with it. And so um, they were always a part of the process. I ran everything I wrote by them. They never asked me to change anything, but I never wanted anything to be a surprise. And I think one of the things that I learned through the writing process was that you can be angry, angry with people and still love them completely. And I think that was one of the things that I had a hard time with growing up was, was ex acknowledging the fact that I was angry about a lot of the things that I had to do as a kid to keep the secret um, and, the, and the way that we lived. Um, but that doesn't mean that I love my parents any less. And I would say that I am not bitter. Bitterness isn't something that I prescribed to generally, but I do have some anger and I think that anger can be a healthy emotion and it's okay to have anger and that's been my biggest learning curve in, in all of this is to sort of accept that anger is an okay thing and to have it and to have it not impact my relationship with my parents. Writing the book actually helped her relationship with her parents. We can finally talk about it. You know, we never talked about it before. We just never, it was just sort of this big elephant in the room. Our entire lives revolved around hoarding and we never talked about it. And at least now we can talk about it and, you know, we can call a spade a spade. And in many senses that makes things a little bit more manageable for us. 
it's also easy to see like where my issues come from too, you know? <laughs> so if my house, I mean, I have two small children, so my house is pretty regularly a mess, but you know, I get to a point where I can't handle it emotionally. And you know, it's much easier for me to say like, okay, I know where this is coming from than to take it out on my kids or my husband. And to just say like, listen guys, like this is my tipping point. You know, we need to clean things up before I lose it. Kimberly has been through a lot. She was afraid when she wrote her book, Coming Clean, that people would judge her, but quite the opposite happened. People opened up about their deepest, darkest secrets to me. Um, I can't tell you how many people I knew shared that they'd either grown up that way or they had close family members who had also um, suffered from hoarding disorder. And they, they totally understood where I was coming from. Uh, people opened up about all sorts of other traumas. And what I realized in writing it was that, you know, we all carry the baggage of our secrets and it's actually what makes us human. It's what makes us empathetic. And, and if we could just share that with people, we'd all feel so much lighter and so much more connected to one another. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that piece, Faith. And what a piece of work by Kimberly Ray Miller. What a voice and what sensitivity that she brought this to her parents. And what remarkable parents for saying, look, if this can help anybody else, write it. And it deepened their relationship. And look, if you've ever had a secret and kept it for too long, you know the cost and the price of that secret. It'll just... It'll just take you down. My whole life was about escaping where they came from. I flew under the radar. Be perfect and no one will notice me. And she's right. So many kids in our schools, so many people around us, they're coming apart. They're just not showing it. And then that suicide attempt, my goodness, that rocked the family. And actually, it changed things. And again, it was not a recommended technique Kimberly Ray Miller suggested others pursue to help a family rectify some real problems. Kimberly Ray Miller's story, coming clean, her family's story, her family's secret unveiled here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories and now it's time for a story about one of our favorite places on earth. Our producer Jesse Edwards brings us the brief history of Disneyland part one. By the time Disneyland opened in 1955, everyone in the country knew the name of Walt Disney. Between creating major animated films like Snow White, Fantasia, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Bambi, and Cinderella, and creating the mouse that started it all, (laughs) Walt Disney had found more success than most men can dream of. The earliest known draft for the park was written up by Walt himself and sent as a memo to a production designer on August 31st, 1948, where it was referred to as Mickey Mouse Park. But Walt had a hard time selling that idea to the bank. 
So he turned to television to raise money to build the park by creating a show called Disneyland on ABC. The network agreed to fund a good portion of the park, and in return, they got world-class Disney programming. Walt Disney's Disneyland. When you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Each week as you enter this timeless land, one of these many worlds will open to you. Frontierland. Tall tales and true from the legendary past. Tomorrowland. Promise of things to come. Adventureland, the wonder world of nature's own realm. Fantasyland, the happiest kingdom of them all. Presenting this week, the Disneyland story. Construction began on July 16, 1954, on a 160-acre lot of walnut trees and orange groves near Anaheim, California, at a cost of $17 million to complete. The park would open one year and one day later to invited guests and the media, while painting, hammering, and laying asphalt was going on within minutes of opening. The following day, Disneyland opened to the public with a national live 90-minute television broadcast that was plagued with technical difficulties. It was anchored by three of Walt Disney's friends from Hollywood, Art Linkletter, Bob Cummings, and future president, Ronald Reagan. All activity in Main Street has ceased. Those carriages which have lined up for the parade to follow are full of celebrities. Walt Disney, Governor Knight, the mayor of Anaheim, and other dignitaries are talking to the three chaplains representing the Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish faith. And now, Walt Disney will step forward to read the dedication of Disneyland. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past, and here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. Admission was $1 for adults and 50 to 75 cents per child, depending on their age. The temperature was unusually hot that day for Anaheim at 101 degrees. And because of a local plumber's strike, Walt had to make the decision to have working drinking fountains or running toilets. Thankfully, he chose the latter. The recently laid asphalt was famously fresh enough for ladies' heels to sink into the blacktop. There was a gas leak in Fantasyland which caused Adventureland, Frontierland, and Fantasyland to close for the day. And there was a seven-mile-long traffic jam just to get into the park where some 28,000 people had gathered. Despite the rough start, it only took seven weeks for guest attendance to reach one million visitors. Twelve different rides were running on opening day, 
Jungle Cruise, King Arthur's Carousel, Snow White's Scary Adventures, Dumbo, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, Disneyland Railroad, Storybook Land Canal Boats, Mad Tea Party, Peter Pan's Flight, Casey Jr. Circus Train, The Mark Twain Riverboat, and Autopia. Bob Gurr is one of the original Imagineers who previously worked as an animator and later found himself building Disneyland rides for Walt Disney. Here's a secret weapon that, that uh, Walt had. He had a sense of what you might be able to do. And it was very curious. He was not interested in your portfolio, was not interested in what you'd done. He was interested in what you're going to do next. It was a very, very interesting uh, perceptions that he had. With those perceptions, he was picking out people right and left because he uh, had a lot of people in the studio, had a lot of friends, and he'd say something. I'd say, I'm looking for a really, really good set designer. You know any good set designers? Yeah, we got a couple of buddies. They're, over, they're working over at Fox. We got a couple of guys at, uh, at Paramount. Could you talk them into coming over and talk to me? So he's got all these leads going right and left, gathering up all these people. It's almost like he's going to grow an orchestra. And the first thing he's got to do, he's got to go get the people who are going to play the instruments while he writes the music. It's, it's that kind of, a, kind of a thing. I got swept into that thing that's going on in late uh, 1954. I had learned there's this thing called Disneyland. It was on the LA Times, great big drawing. And I thought, oh, that's fabulous. I hope they build a place like that. I'd go. And go he did. One of the first projects Bob got to work on were the Autopia cars. As part of Tomorrowland, the Autopia cars represented the future of what would become America's multi-lane freeways, which were still just being developed at the time. Autopia car designed the body. He assumed if I did the body, I do the mechanical part. I just kept my mouth shut and I kept drawing. Long story short, we built uh, 40 cars. Uh, one was a show car for Walt, two were police cars, so we had 37 cars running on opening day. At the end of the week, we had two cars running. You learn quick. I mean, everybody, stuff broke, and then we get down to the spot. Now we're going to teach ourselves what it takes to make a Disneyland. And that was a critical point, and everybody did stuff they've never done in their life because, number one, there's no history of a Disneyland. There's nothing to research. We've never done it, nobody's ever done it, so we're all going to do it anyway. And that was the inspiration that Walt could get you not to be scared to do that stuff. Do you know how the stuff was broken, worn out, and didn't work, and we were taking it out, putting it on the truck, and taking it back to fix it? Uh, the summer of 55, it was very hot most of the time. Uh, no, no cars were air-conditioned, the freeway hadn't been built yet. Uh, and as fast as we fixed something, something else broke. But by the time we got to about Labor Day, we actually got stuff to last pretty doggone long uh, before it broke again. And at the same time, we have people that are learning how to manage people, inspiring everybody. We got keep going, keep going. We're going to get all this stuff figured out. And Walt's right there supporting to do all this. And somehow, that's where I really, really saw the magic of a leadership and the leadership with a guy that didn't look or act like a, a leader. And you've been listening to Bob Gurr, and he's one of the many people Walt Disney depended on to make his vision happen. And this is what great leaders do. They bring people in and they tap their talents. And Bob had said, he was interested in what you were going to do next. 
It's fantastic. And he also convinced you not to be scared, not to be afraid. In the end, that's what makes for great leadership. In the end, buy into a vision, let people own a piece of the vision, and then cheerlead them on. And when we continue, more of the remarkable story of Disneyland here on Our American Story. We continue here on Our American Stories with a brief history of Disneyland Part 1. Here again is Jesse. By January of 1960, 20 million people had visited the park. On January 21st, the grand opening of the submarine ride, monorail, and the Matterhorn took place. Bob Gurr was tasked by Walt Disney to design the Matterhorn roller coaster, but Bob didn't know anything about roller coasters at the time, so he improvised. Roller coasters, there's a thing called neutral slope. In other words, you have to have a slope that if you have a vehicle that's standing still, it won't move, and if it's moving, it will continue to move at that speed without accelerating or decelerating. This is the golden angle. The car goes down and comes back up, but not all the way back. It only comes up to the neutral slope. In between, it changes speed. It changes drag, aerodynamic drag, wheel drag, time of day, temperature, oil in the wheels. I need to know trigonometry, and I got an F and pass in geometry one in the 10th grade, and I need trigonometry. Luckily, I had a little book about, you know, old days you had a chart. I looked it up and said, oh, trig, 15 minutes. Why why does it take a semester to learn trig? It's here, 15 minutes, okay. But that's the way we do stuff at Disney. We've got to go like mad. They had a secret weapon to cover the neutral slope. Booster brakes. How many times you ride the Matterhorn and if you're in the front car, you see a little tire that's rolling? All right, the bottom of the car is flat. If the car is too slow, it comes up to the top of the hill where it's still going to stop. The booster brake pushes the car over the hill. What happens if you're going way too fast? It slows you down. Magic invention by necessity. More than 800 gallons of paint were used to create a realistic look of heavy snowfall on the original Matterhorn, and it was the first major expansion of the park since its opening in 1955. It was the first roller coaster in the world to feature a tubular steel track and an electronic dispatch system which allowed for more than one car at a time to be on the track. There's even a secret room at the top of the Matterhorn where Disneyland employees can take a break and even shoot some basketball hoops. A year after opening the Matterhorn, construction of New Orleans Square began on the other side of the park. 
at a cost of more than $18 million to build, it cost more than the actual Louisiana Purchase. And it's home to the most popular rides in the park. Now, Pirates of the Caribbean was originally supposed to be a walk-through wax museum. But after Walt's huge success at the 1964 World's Fair with a prototype of It's a Small World, he decided to make Pirates a water ride. Psst, I've asked there. It be too late to alter course, mateys. And there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel borders. And mark well me words, mateys. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> Ye come seeking adventure and salty old pirates, eh? Sure, you've come to the proper place. But keep a weather eye open, mates, and hold on tight. With both hands, if you please. There be squalls ahead. And Davy Jones waiting for them what don't obey. In fact, there are 630,000 gallons of water, 53 animatronic animals and birds, 75 animatronic pirates and villagers in the attraction, and it takes three days to empty and refill the bayou for renovations. Alice Davis was one of the original Imagineers to help develop the ride. She was responsible for the hundreds of intricately detailed costumes worn by the lifelike animatronics. Since I was working on the costumes, um, I started thinking, you know, they should have more than one costume. They should have two costumes for each figure because if something happens, uh, there's um, hydraulic pipes, you know, cords that go through. Um, and if one of those cords gets twisted and, and snaps, you have this terrible red oil that comes out and you can't get it out of the fabric. I mean, it's lost. And they said, oh, we can't, we don't have the time. We have to have just one costume as quick as can be. Well, you can cut two out at the same time you cut one. When I went to the bookkeeper to say how much material I needed for shirts and pants and all this, I would give him twice the amount I needed and he didn't know. So I made two costumes and I hid one set. Sure enough, when the ride opened, Everything was fine, excepting about a month and a half later, they had a fire. They came running to me, you know, oh, what are we going to do? We, we have to keep the ride closed till we get more costumes. And uh, how long will it take you? And I said, well, I will be, uh, have everything ready for you in a half an hour. Well, and I showed them that I had made two sets <laughs> and they, didn't know whether to hit me or kiss me, so. <laughs> but uh, the, the show was only closed for one day. That's one day that Walt Disney would never see, because he died three months before the ride opened. Walt was diagnosed with lung cancer and passed on December 15th of 1966. At the age of 65, Walt Disney was cremated, and his ashes were interred at Forest Lawn Cemetery. But there's another ride in New Orleans Square that Walt had been working on before he crossed over. When hinges creak in doorless chambers and strange and frightening sounds echo through the halls, whenever candlelights flicker where the air is deathly still, that is the time 
when ghosts are present, practicing their terror with ghoulish delight. Welcome, foolish mortals, to the haunted mansion. I am your host, your ghost host. <laughs> Kindly step all the way in, please, and make room for everyone. There's no turning back now. The Haunted Mansion was originally designed to be a museum of the weird, a museum of strange and haunted items from all over the world. The concept then morphed into a haunted walkthrough wax museum, similar to the way Pirates of the Caribbean was developed. Many of the attractions leading up to the ride itself inside of the Haunted Mansion are the early concepts for the Museum of the Weird. The man who came up with these original concepts is legendary Imagineer Roly Crump, another Disney animator who was recruited to design rides at Disneyland. I remember seeing a movie, Beauty and the Beast, that was made by Jean Cateau, the French director of this monster that would come home at night into his castle and all the arms uh, on the wall that held the torches would help, help him go forward with him. And then there were faces over the fireplace that looked at each other and steam came out of their mouths. And I thought, that's the kind of stuff we got to put in the Haunted Mansion because prior to that it was just a bunch of eyes going back and forth and footprints on the ceiling and stuff that I felt was kind of corny. But you know, this was the thing uh, that I loved about Walt. If you always had to show him something he'd never seen before, he didn't want to constantly trace himself. And I think that that's the one thing I offered to him was uh, the imagination of, of doing something different. And not only that, standing up for it, you know, and saying, well, I think we can use it no matter what, Walt, some way or another. And so then he went home and figured out how to do it. And that is perhaps what Walt Disney did best, turning imagination into reality. With nearly 20 million visitors to the park each year, it costs somewhere around $3.5 million just to operate the park every day. But Disneyland is so much more than statistics and earnings. It's the smell of warm churros in the air on a warm summer night with your family. It's the look on your kid's face when you bring them to the park for the first, second, or third time and getting to relive those moments with them as you remember when your parents took you there as a kid, like mine did. It's like Walt said, Here, age relives fond memories of the past. And here, youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America. With the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. And to think, it all simply started with a dad who wanted to build an extraordinary place to spend time with his kids. Well, it came about when my daughters were very young, and I, Saturday was always uh, Daddy's Day with the two daughters. So we'd start out and try to go someplace with, you know, different things, and I take them to the merry-go-round, and I took them different places, and as I'd sit there while they, uh, they rode the merry-go-round, did all these things, sit on a bench, you know, eating peanuts, I felt that there should be something built, some kind of a, an amusement enterprise built where that the parents and the children could uh, have fun together. So that's how Disneyland started. Well, it took many years. It was a, a whole period of maybe 15 years developing it. Uh, I started with many ideas, threw them away, started all over again. 
And eventually it evolved into what you see today as Disneyland. But it all started from a daddy with two daughters wondering where he could take them, where he could have a little fun with them too. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And my goodness, there's one line at the top of my notepad here. The animators were tapped to design rides. What a crazy idea you'd think on the surface. But engineering decisions can get made later. The Imagineers had to imagine up what these new rides would look like. What a story, the brief history of Disneyland, part one. Looking forward to more from Jesse, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and whenever we can, we bring you authors whose books we just couldn't put down. And today we're hearing stories from Roe Patterson, whose book Crude Blessings, the amazing life story of Glenn Patterson, American oil man, is a celebration of his father and the values he modeled. Roe, I want to start at the beginning. The first words from the book, quote, It's a day I'll never forget. Saturday morning, early spring of 1986. I was about 12. Dad shook me awake around 6 a.m. Nothing strange about that. Saturday was a work day. So was Sunday sometimes. He's been putting us to work on various weekends since elementary school. End of quote. That's where things started off. Where were you? Where were you going? And why? Well, that particular Saturday, we were going out to cut up uh, some structural pipe basically leftover flow lines from an old oil field and dad was selling the pipe off um, kind of as a, uh, a spare job for some spare income to make his uh, interest payments at the bank. Um, times were pretty tough in 1986. The company was in pretty rough shape. Uh, dad and, and my uncle Clois had had pretty much hawked everything they had. They were borrowed to the hilt and and they couldn't make their principal payments at the bank, and the bank had put them on interest-only payments. And uh, Dad just did little things uh, all everywhere he could to earn enough money to make his interest payments. And one of those things was was going out and cutting up all that old flow line and selling it off as structural steel. And that's what we were doing that day. Talk about where you were at the time. What part of the country were you living in? And talk a little bit more about your life growing up at that time? So we were in Snyder, Texas, which is western Texas, and we were in uh, really what amounted to the eastern side of what is called the Permian Basin, which is is still today one of the hottest oil and gas fields uh, in the world. Kind of middle of nowhere, out, out in the middle of west Texas on some ranch land, you know, that's where we went to cut up this old oil field uh, flow line and, and pipe uh, so that we could sell it for a 12-year-old kid, you know, the, the world was pretty small. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't think there was much else out there besides West Texas. And let's talk about your dad's dad as we dig into the story of your father, and that's what this really is. This is a father-son story. But your father had a father. And you say this about him, quote, He worked hard at working hard. My dad was raised by this man and by these principles. Talk about your granddad. 
You know, my granddad was an interesting character. Uh, he came from a generation that really prided themselves in how hard they worked. Uh, they took a lot of pride in the fact that they had steady work and that they, they worked hard at their jobs. And he felt, uh, my granddad and, and my dad to a great extent, and I still do today, that a man is measured by his efforts and how hard he works, not necessarily for how much money he's accumulated. And so wealth was not an impressing thing to my grandfather. Um, he was just a hard worker. And my dad was raised that way, you know, that you measured a man by how hard a, uh, he worked at a particular job. And, uh, you know, my dad, to a large extent, raised my brother and I the same way. You know, we still today will we'll say things about, you know, individuals in the company that I run. You know, I, I will label people sometimes. Well, that guy's a hard worker or she's a really hard worker. And that means a lot to me. It's not necessarily a quantification of their success. It's that when they apply themselves, they're driven and they have a sense of urgency about accomplishment. In, in whatever task or activity that they've chosen to endeavor on. That's a big deal to me. Yeah, it is indeed. Let's talk about poverty. Dirt poor was how my father described his upbringing. Talk about your father, where he grew up and how. He was born in 1946, by the way, just a year after World War II ended. And these were a lot of American men coming home from real, real tough battle. Yeah, and uh, you know, Dad was one of these guys. They they moved around a lot when he was a kid, kind of uh, town to town, chasing work. And Dad was definitely got to witness all of that. And they had to work at a young age. You know, my dad had to start helping out at a young age, just kind of like I did. They didn't have a lot. They farmed a little, and they cut up uh, scrap iron. He he got his nickname because he cut up scrap iron. Uh, you know, he was kind of a master of junk. He would recycle stuff and sell it off. And then always in, in our part of the world, there was the oil field as a source of income. And so my grandfather, my dad, myself, were all products of, of the, what the industry brought to our area, our geography. Indeed. Now you also say about your dad, quote, he didn't learn much from books. He would learn from people. But he had an intelligence and an instinct that came from his gut. You also note that he was small for his size when he entered high school, but grew up and grew up to be a bit of a brawler and a bit of a truant in, in high school. Well, he was a little bitty guy when he started high school. I think he was one of the smallest boys in his entire um, high school class. Uh, uh, but uh, by the time he, he graduated and got into college, he was about 6'4", and he weighed, you know, 220 pounds, so he grew up quite a bit. You know, he's a tough guy. Uh, he didn't like anybody being picked on. He couldn't stand a bully. He had a few fights where, um, you know, the bully got whipped because he, uh, he picked on the wrong person, and Dad decided to back him up. And so uh, he was that kind of guy. He always rooted for an underdog, and that's kind of the the environment that he was raised in. He had a brother, my uncle, whose uh, name is Alton Patterson, still still alive today, and, and he and Alton had notorious fights. You know, bare-knuckle fighting was no big deal to them. They, they, would, they would do it at the drop of a hat, and I think they kind of liked it. Um, you know, I think Dad was, I would, I would call him a, a, as much of a, a serial truant as any other high school kid. If he could get out of school, he tried to. 
he never really was interested in a lot of book learning. He went and got his college degree, worked himself through college by working in the oil field. He wanted that degree so he could go be a school teacher and get out of the oil field, you know, and then he and he thought about going back into grad school at one point uh, just so he could become a principal because he figured, well, if I'm going to be in a school system, I might as well be the boss of the school. You know, he wasn't a studious person where he would he would do lots and lots of reading or anything like that. He did read character, though. He was very good at sizing up business deals and people involved in those business deals. He could always spot a crook a long way off. He was very intuitive at reading people. And when we come back, more from Roe Patterson, author of Crude Blessings, and it's the life story of his dad, Glenn Patterson, an American oil man. This is Our American Stories. Roe Patterson, the CEO of Basic Energy Services, and the author of Crude Blessings, which is a family story centered on his father, Glenn. But of course, we can't really understand our fathers without talking about our moms. And Roe, your mom, she had experienced some real heartbreak before she met your dad. Talk about that. Yeah, my mother would... uh... She had gotten pregnant in her, in her first marriage uh, to, to a gentleman that she ended up parting ways with. So there she is, a single mom with a child, very young. Um, did, did fall in love again with a, um, a highway patrolman and uh, had a good life. They, uh, she enjoyed being married to him, wasn't married to him very long, and, and tragedy struck again. Uh, he died in a car accident. And now she, you know, been married twice, still raising a, a young child on her own, and uh, uh, really wasn't looking for another relationship when she met my dad. But uh, my dad had a best friend, and that best friend was dating my mom's very good friend. And so they double dated some, and she liked him, and they had a lot of fun when they would go out. He made her laugh. And uh, and so the, the relationship just sort of blossomed from there. But neither one of them were looking, you know, for that kind of love when they found it. And that's, uh, that's something that we know happened because they get married, and ultimately he chooses to teach with her. They go out to a little city called San Antonio. And talk about what that was like for your dad, because it's so very different than what he would end up doing. Did he ever talk to you about the years he taught and ultimately he refed too, I, I remember, right? Right. He was a basketball referee. He loved it. Uh, they both loved it. And they loved San Antonio. My mom was a drama teacher and dad was a, a, a DECA or a life skills uh, teacher. One of the first things he had to do when he, he got married to my mom was uh, teach her how to balance a checkbook because she couldn't do it because uh, they just didn't have very much money. But they loved their life. It was simple. And they weren't ever going to be very wealthy, but Dad uh, he said, you know, it was a good a good time to be young and married in San Antonio. I think that reality was starting to set in when I came along, a second child. You know, school teachers at that time and still today don't make near enough money uh, than for what they do, and uh, the bills were starting to pile up a little bit, and uh, and that's why when the oil field came calling. 
it had a certain attraction. Let's talk about a man named Clois Talbot, because, but for him, you never know what would have happened. Clois was my uncle. Uh, he married my dad's sister, and um, the closer that uh, Clois and dad got, got to know each other, the more they liked each other. Clois had uh, gone to Texas Tech and gotten a petroleum engineering degree. He had started a couple of companies, and uh, he was in search of fortune in the oil and gas industry. And he liked Dad's work ethic. In fact, Dad used to work for him part-time during the summers uh, when he wasn't teaching school. And and Clois really liked the the way Dad ran his equipment and and took care of things and, uh, and the natural human leadership that that dad possessed. He was very capable of getting people enthusiastic about doing their job and doing it well. And Klaus saw all those qualities in dad. And uh, in one Thanksgiving, he hit dad up. You know, he said, look, uh, you know, there's a lot of people making money in the drilling business, and uh, I think we ought to start a drilling company. And dad said, oh, no, heck no, I wouldn't know the first thing about that, and, and I don't have any money. Clause said, you know, they're loaning money every day to guys that are not as smart as you and I. We ought to go raise some equity with some investors, go get some loans, and go build some rigs. Clause has an infectious personality, too. He's a good salesman and very optimistic, a a real hard charger, a hard worker also. And he finally uh, talked Dad into it, and, and the rest was history. They started with a big loan, a few investors, and and went out and bought one old rig fix that thing up and put it to work. Uh, little by little, that's how they started, you know, the second largest drilling company in, in the world. And I love the part where he called his partner finally after pondering this and said, why the hell not? And that's just, uh, that's a remarkable spirit. I mean, leaving something you know, and particularly with kids and a mortgage to just well, go out into this unknown world, and that took a lot of guts. Talk about oil and also the odd things that happen in your business, the huge swings in prices that sometimes a great success can suddenly and dramatically turn into an epic loss. That is an understatement of all time. Uh, There's no more cyclical industry than the energy industry. You know, oil drives the world. It's our number one stock for all fuels, uh, whether it be gasoline, kerosene, jet fuel, uh, diesel. It's the base component for all plastics in the world. You know, the world can't live without energy and without crude oil. It is still a a fantastic industry. Um, You can go from rags to riches or riches to rags uh, faster in this industry than any that I can think of. If you see a very successful oil and gas entrepreneur, you're probably looking at someone who's been broke multiple times in their life uh, before they gained their ultimate success. That is true to this day. Um, I know very few successful people in my industry, including me, who haven't been busted at some point. And I can't think of a, of a more American kind of uh, a resilient you know, entrepreneurial, fun industry than our oil and gas industry where uh, you see so many people become wealthy because they work really hard at it. And so it's a, it's a fantastic and amazing industry. There's days when I hate it and I wish I knew how to do something different. Uh, but most days I wake up and I I'm, I'm feel pretty blessed. Your dad and his partner began in 1977, and that was, I guess, a pretty good time to start a drilling company 
Why was that? Well, the OPEC had had uh, cut off some supply. They were trying to control market share globally, and it had run some prices up. So there was a a, a real desire uh, in North America to to produce, uh, you know, our own energy, our own oil, so that we wouldn't have to face, you know, gas shortages and gas lines and and uh, you know be constantly dependent upon foreign oil. So it was a real boom time in in the late seventies. It was a good time to to jump into the business. Let's talk about drilling. It's no duck walk. And the hard part about starting a drilling operation, it turned out, was finding good rigs. Talk about that. Yeah, so the the industry is definitely not an easy one, and it does require a lot of ingenuity. We're constantly improving it and gaining on efficiencies. Uh, You can imagine that the drilling wells in the early 80s or late 70s versus drilling wells today were kind of quantum leaps ahead as far as technology. But But the general sense of what we're trying to accomplish is still the same. You know, we're searching for buried treasure. The thing about Cloyce and Dad starting in the drilling business together, you know, Dad had worked on rigs his whole life, but he didn't have the foggiest idea of how to run a drilling company. And Cloyce thought that that, uh, Dad knew what he was doing, and Dad thought Cloyce knew what he was doing. So uh, it was the blind leading the blind when they really got off and got into the ditch and got, you know, multiple rigs they were trying to run. But, uh, you know, they they worked at it, and they worked well together. They put together a great team of people. They surrounded themselves by as, as much wisdom as they could, there were fits and, and spurts there, but they finally uh, started to hit, you know, a few base hits and and uh, and some doubles along the way there in the early '80s before uh, the next oil field crash kind of found them in the mid '80s. I love that you wrote this about investors and what they were probably thinking. My God, these guys can't drill one well. How are they ever going to build a company? They lost eight hundred thousand dollars in their first two years. They hung in there and they stuck it out. Talk about that resilience, uh, because it's coming in handy right at the beginning of this business, isn't it? Oh, and it comes in handy every time we have a big cycle shift in this industry. You have to have a never-say-die, never-say-quit kind of attitude. You know, they ran into several really bad cycles along the way. You know, my dad used to say, hey, we were, we were bankrupt. We just didn't file the paperwork. One thing would always lead to another, and I think that their faith in God, their faith in each other, the hard work, the tenacity that they showed, they always found a way to just get out of the ditch, dust themselves off, and get back to making money again. Dad used to say, I'd rather be lucky than good. You know, have you ever noticed how lucky a hardworking man is? And I think he would also say today, you know, have you ever noticed how blessed we all were? They definitely had their share of of hiccups along the way. They were land drillers for the most part, and they got into the offshore drilling business, and uh, it almost wrecked them, almost completely sunk the company. And they ended up having a catastrophic loss of one of the pieces of equipment in the Gulf. It fell over. It was called a punch-through, and it was a, a natural occurrence. It was something you insured the rig for, and when they figured out what the insurance was going to pay, it ended up paying all their debt off, and getting them back out of the ditch again. And they sold the rest of the equipment and, and made out like bandits. But it, it was just unbelievable amount of, of, uh, of luck that, that did it for them. And luck never hurt anybody. We were bankrupt. We just didn't file the paperwork. I just love that. To learn more about the resilience 
of Glenn Patterson, his son Roe, is the author of Crude Blessings, their story, when we return here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Roe Patterson talking about his dad, Glenn, a legend in the energy business. Roe, tell us about the time you were in the yard with your dad, and he did something that really surprised and kind of confused you at the time. My dad was very competitive, but he also had a lot of respect for another competitor. So anytime he, you know, he saw someone who was trying hard, working hard, even if they were his competitor, he admired him, and he had a lot of respect for him. And one day, uh, one of his uh, competitors came into the yard, and I happened to be in the pickup with him, uh, and the guy was down on his luck. He had had a piece of equipment fail, and uh, he was in a real bad jam. He knew that Dad had a spare piece of this special equipment that was, that was needed, and he needed it, and he couldn't get it anywhere else. Um, and he had come to Dad for help, and Dad never batted an eye. He loaded that equipment up for that gentleman and said, pay me when you can, good luck. Never, never thought twice about it. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, that guy's, you know, you're bidding against him every day for jobs. Why would you help him? And you know what? He just looked at me. He, 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 he almost couldn't figure out why I was asking. He said, because he needed help. And uh, it was the right thing to do. And he, he met every challenge in his life that way. You know, Dad wasn't an extraordinarily religious person uh, early in life. He was later in life, but early in life he, he really wasn't. But he lived his life by some very godly principles. You know, to treat others as you want to be treated was probably one of his biggest mantras. And he always did. He always tried to treat people the way he would want to be treated and, and treat them ethically. And so it didn't matter if it was customer, competitor, vendor, employee, he wanted you all to be treated well when you had a dealing with him or with his company. Tell the story of Jody Nelson, because one person like him can destroy a company. And we had talked earlier about your dad having a keen eye for character, but as keen as any of our eyes are, one can always slip through. Talk about Jody. Yeah, you know, he was a young guy, a sharp guy, very likable Clois and, and, and even Dad had given him a lot of responsibility. He'd moved up through the organization. When it came time where they needed a new CFO, um, they gave him a shot. He was very young, but uh, they thought he was very capable as well, and that uh, under the, uh, the tutelage of both Clois and Dad and the rest of the board members, they felt like he could fulfill the role. What they didn't know was that the guy was uh, diabolic, and he had a huge fraud invoicing scheme that he was running in the background, keeping it hidden from the auditors, keeping it hidden from the board. And Patterson was doing extraordinarily well during this time frame, and so the profits weren't missed uh, because the company was making so much money and doing and doing so well. When it finally all came crashing down on this guy, uh, you know, he got caught over over a little tiny expense account. And then that led to one thing and then led to another. And so you, you see a lot of these fraudsters, when they're finally caught, it's usually some little trip up that gets them, you know, and uh, something small that they've, they've kind of uh, forgotten about and, and just really hadn't paid attention to. And then that, but that being what it is, being fraud or being wrong, 
makes people question everything you do, and then they start to dig, and when they dig, they, that's when they find more and more. And that's what happened in Jody's case. You know, he had misused the trust that the company had given him, that Clois had given him, and that Dad had given him, and he had defrauded the company out of several million dollars, seventy-something um, million total, over an eight-year period. You know, he ended up going to federal pen, I think, for 25, and a 25-year sentence with, with no chance for parole. And, you know, it, it ruined his life. And uh, it's just a shame to see someone get so sick with, with greed that, uh, that they were able to do that. Both Clois and Dad were always very disappointed that they didn't sniff him out quicker and keep it from being such a, a, a wreck of a story, both for, for the company and for Jody himself. Yeah, it had to hurt Dad and, and, and his partner on the deepest level because that kind of betrayal is personal, A, and B, it's reputational. Let's talk about the merger that changed the family business. You wrote this. It was a proud moment for my father. In two short decades, the former San Antonio schoolteacher and basketball referee had catapulted himself to the helm of a company worth $2.6 billion. Talk about that. Yeah, there was a, a, a phase of consolidation in the industry. We, we go through these periods in the oil and gas industry, and especially on the oil field services side of the industry, where we, we build a lot of fragmentation in the industry. So there ends up being a lot of, of uh, privately backed or small sponsors uh, that, that, that build up too many oil field service companies. And then so you see these waves of consolidation where they start to get all bought up by some of the bigger actors in the market. And what, what Clois and Dad had done in the, uh, in the, the late uh, 1990s was they went on a buying spree. And they started, I actually got out of college about that time and was working for them. And we were buying drilling companies up left and right and just merging them into to Patterson. And, and Patterson was becoming bigger and bigger. And Patterson's biggest competitor out there in this whole purchasing spree was a company called UTI, Union Triad. And, uh, uh, you know, they finally got the good sense, both the Union Triad leadership and the Patterson leadership, to put the companies together and form an even larger drilling company and quit, quit bidding on drilling companies with each other and just put, put themselves uh, uh, under the same uh, public entity. And they, they did that in, in uh, the 2000, 2001 timeframe. And it was a very proud moment for all of them, for Clois, for Dad. Uh, they, were, they had really seen the company go from you know, one rig to, to you know, well over 300 combined rigs together. And uh, it, was, it was pretty magical to see that kind of homegrown American success story. And what a long way your dad had come, Roe, from having one rig where practically nothing worked to this merger into an industry giant. But as well as things were going with work, your dad soon had a new challenge to face as he entered retirement. Again, I quote from your book, quote, taking time off was simply not in dad's playbook. And here he was retired. But there was something eating away at dad that was more troubling. It was subtle, but he couldn't deny it anymore. He had started forgetting things. Talk about that. Yeah, so Dad's uh, probably getting about 59 years old uh, at this time. It's probably 2005-ish, uh, 4-ish, right in there. And, uh, you know, they, they just had an unbelievable run in the industry. I think Dad had been at the helm of the new combined Patterson UTI for 
three or four years, and they had gotten through the Jody uh, disaster, and he just felt like it was time to hang it up, and he felt like it was going to be a time for new people with new ideas, new new levels of energy to come in to the industry. But he 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 had a hard time doing it. He had a hard time giving up. Um, but I think one of the things that sort of pushed him over the edge uh, that it was time to uh, retire was he was starting to forget very small things. Uh, his short-term memory was starting to fade a little bit. I would have multiple conversations with him that were the same, you know, and I'd say, Dad, we've already talked about this. You know, we talked about it yesterday. Oh, no, we didn't. Yes, we did. You know, and, and then, uh, you know, he would forget the score to the, to, to the golf game, you know, how, you know, how many holes he had won versus how many holes I had won. It was little things. Uh, he'd forget a phone number. He never forget phone numbers. He was, his mind was like a steel trap. He could always remember people's phone numbers. But he started forgetting little things like that, and it scared him. And it was unfortunate, and here he is, you know, in the twilight of his life, in the twilight of his career, and he's, he, you know, he's, he's ready to retire and ring the bell. And, uh, you know, it was obvious that something was wrong. And uh, he went to multiple physicians to, to seek answers. And the answer came back each time that it was Alzheimer's. And that was tough to swallow. You know, he, he just couldn't believe that here he was, you know, 59, 60 years old, and he has, he's being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He just, uh, it took the breath out of him, took the wind out of him for sure. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story. And in the end, parts of it sad and parts of it triumphal. Roe Patterson's story of his father, Crude Blessings, The Amazing Life of Glenn Patterson, American Oil Man. That story continues here on Our American Story. Continue with the story of Glenn Patterson is told by his son Roe. And we had just learned about this remarkable merger and this man who'd started with nothing, building this big company and selling it. And then, after that remarkable news, devastating news, and the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And by the way, we talk a lot about Alzheimer's here on this show. And as you know, Roe, it's something that affects the entire family, not just the patient. Tell us about a particularly tough day for you, June 10, 2010. Yeah, very hard day. My brother and I had been, you know, we'd been contacted multiple times by, by local police, by friends of the family, and just said, you know, hey, your dad pulled out in front of so-and-so. Um, his motor skills were starting to, to, to diminish, and he did not need to be behind the wheel. He was just forgetting some of the the things that we all take for granted when we're driving. You know, a light turns green, you go, and then when it turns red, you stop. And, and, you know, he was forgetting things like that. You know, it just wasn't making as much sense. But he still had a huge amount of pride in driving himself and in his vehicle. You know, the, the, his pride had always been a clean pickup, and he still had a clean pickup, and he still loved driving around in that truck. 
And, uh, you know, when we, we went to talk him out of, of driving or tried to talk him out of driving, it was about a, as big of a fight and argument and upsetting to him as I ever could have imagined. And, uh, you know, it's just it's very difficult to, for someone who has a lot of pride uh, to, to, you know, be told, you know, you can't drive anymore. Um, and that's a, just a, a very painful thing to have or have to talk to your parent about. Indeed. At one point, I think things got so bad for your dad that he actually thought about just giving up and, and even suicidal notions. And you wrote this, my heart sank. The man who never quit, who never gave in to adversity, always pushed ahead no matter what and modeled that for everyone around him was ready to quit. Yeah, you know, he, he, had, he had given me every indication that he was thinking about taking his life. He had said as much to my mother, um, you know, that he wasn't good for anything anymore. You know, the disease had robbed him of, of his pride. And, um, you know, he was just at his wit's end and at his bottom. You know, his, the, his morale was, could not have been any lower. And he felt like he was just going to be this burden on everybody for, for the rest of his life, you know, and, and, and uh, he just wasn't willing to, to accept that. You know, I quickly removed the firearms from the house and, and made sure that, uh, you know, that uh, there was no way he could do that. Um, but it's something that uh, our family just had to deal with. I think a lot of families, when you're dealing with something like cancer or or Alzheimer's or any of these, you know, diseases that uh, that can be terminal, that's um, you know, it's definitely something that that patient has to 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 deal with and overcome is their you know their their mortality and that and that. Um, you know, ending it quickly and uh, uh, could be one uh, solution, but it's not. It's not the right one for your family or for yourself. And and uh, but it was a uh, it was a a difficult period that Dad uh, did did overcome. Uh, and and uh, he found quite a lot of joy in in religion a- uh, after that. But but it, it kind of took him hitting rock bottom before um, you know he found that. Yeah, let's talk about that. You know, there was a lot for your dad to take in almost at once. The embezzlement, the retirement, the exit from his company, all tough things. Then the Alzheimer's. Let's talk about your dad's faith walk. You wrote this, quote, All of these things, they all hit him at basically the same period of his life. No wonder he wasn't at peace. I did a lot of praying for him that year. So did Mom. We asked the Lord to help open Dad's heart. But everyone is responsible for their own salvation, you can't make a horse drink, especially a stubborn mule like Glenn Patterson. Talk about your father's faith walk as a young man and a man. You know, he always had a strong belief in God. He didn't practice religion very well. He was not a good churchgoer. His mother was very religious, and he was raised on those principles of, of honor and integrity and ethics and doing the right thing and being good to people, giving to others in need. And he did a lot of that in his life. He lived a very godly life, as I said earlier, without even really understanding why or how. But at the end of his life, he wanted that personal relationship with God that he had never had. That he, you know, that prayer life, uh, that intimacy with God that, that was missing, he, he went looking for it and he found it. 
and uh, it, it was it was unbelievable uh, to see that kind of transformation of him. And when he found his religion, he faced it like he did almost everything in his life with tenacity. He went to church every single Sunday. He sat in the same spot. He was very involved. He wanted to hear the the word of God spoken. He wanted to be preached to. He wanted to sing the sing the songs. He he loved being in at the church services and listening to the music. And he and he you know so he jumped into religion with both feet. Uh, you know, kind of like he faced anything in life. You know, so um, it was a very. Uh, peaceful thing for my family to experience after we had just seen him go through all of that adversity. I want to get to one moment between your mom and dad in this great book. And your your story started like this, quote, he looked in my mom's eyes. There's no fixing what's wrong with me, is there? It was one of the few times my mother says my dad really faced his illness. No, I don't think God intends to heal you for whatever reason, This is his will for you. Your dad took it stoically, you wrote. His faith was now strong enough to accept God's will fully. He knew he was no longer in charge and would never be in charge again. He never really had been in charge at all. What a relief. Yeah, you know, dad was, uh, he was the one everyone looked to. You know, he was the leader. He had the answers, you know, both in his company and his personal life. He was a leader of men. And uh, there was a lot of responsibility that comes with that when you're a leader like that. And, uh, you know, people look to you for the answers to predicaments or problems or solutions to challenges. And for him to face that uh, rationalization, that there was nothing he could do about Alzheimer's, um, and that God was in control and was going to take care of him, um, he was relieved. Uh, you know, he he was um, he was finally at peace. He didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to be the go-to person. God could do that for him. And I think it dawned on him and it hit him at just the right time that it needed to. Indeed. I want to read from your eulogy, and I think for anybody listening out there who wants to take some lesson from this, and I think it's why you put it in your eulogy, and Rose, so I'm going to read it. You said, Dad was a Christian. But for most of my life, he was not. I knew he wanted me to know Christ, but he wanted very little relationship with God for himself. He didn't come to church with us, and we didn't talk with him much about God. When we did talk about it, he would say, God and I have an understanding, and don't worry about me. But I did worry. I worried I wouldn't see him in heaven. You see, it was pride that prevented him from being saved, and we knew it, and he knew it. It wasn't shocking. I've known many men who suffered from the same problem. In fact, we all probably have. Talk about that pride and how how blessed you were to see that fade away at the very end. Well, I think so many times, um, you know, human nature is that we we have we have to solve certain things. Now, there's there's always uh, problems that that, uh, that that we have in life, and and we we are the ones that have to handle it, right? And I think as men, uh, you you, it's, you slip into that uh, misconception a lot uh, that you you've got to handle it. You know, you've got to step up for the family and take care of certain things. I think for Dad, it was a it was a blessing later in life to to realize that no, you you, you just have to have faith. You have to give up your will so that his will can be done. Uh, 
And that's a difficult transition for anyone to make. It's a challenge I think we have our whole lives is to submit to, you know, a higher authority and a higher power and, and, and that will of that power. And that submissiveness is a pride thing. You know, it's I've got to take care of this. This is my issue. You know, you take care of you, I take care of me. And and the truth is, we all need help. And, uh, and I think that's what Dad uh, found uh, later in life. Uh, it just took him a lot longer. Uh, but uh, but he, well, I was proud of him and proud for him that he had finally uh, figured out that... Uh, God was in control and that uh, all he had to do was um, believe and pray for his will to be done in his life. Indeed, and I'll close with the final words of your eulogy. I believe Dad's legacy and his testimony should be this. It is never too late for Christ, and it's never too early. Dad was a good man and a great dad, but he had many flaws just like we all do, and he was a sinner. He wasn't perfect. But because he was broken and believed, he's perfect now. And thanks to Roe Patterson for that remarkable tribute to his own dad and families that don't know their own stories. Well, how sad. And we're trying to correct that. And we want to hear your stories, your family stories, a father, a mother, a grandparent. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. By the way, this has been a running series about a town, too, this remarkable town, Midland, Texas, Send some stories about your town, because we'd love to tell a story about another town. The country is filled with so many great towns and communities. And by the way, thanks to the Sparks family. They recommended the Patterson story. And the Sparks family, well, we did a story about them, too. Don has 11 family members spanning three different generations working at his 29-person company, Discovery Operating. And you can hear that great family story at OurAmericanNetwork.org as well. Roe Patterson, Glenn Patterson, their stories, the Patterson family story, here on Our American Stories.